Good evening. I'm Gordon Barris. Um, I am visiting professor at LSE Ideas, where I deal with strategy, something that follows on from 30-odd years in the Foreign Office and the Cabinet Office, and 10 years or so advising PricewaterhouseCoopers on how to develop their business in China. It is really very nice uh, to be here. And I would like to welcome you all this evening on behalf of the management department of LSE to hear Richard Rummeld, uh, the professor of management studies at UCLA uh, Anderson, which is their management school, who will be speaking about uh, his book, Good Strategy, Bad Strategy, What is the Difference and Why It Matters. But before I go further with introductions, I was told that there is an important announcement that I have to make, two, two in fact. One is that we are hoping, we are recording this uh, performance, and it should be online uh, in the next day or so. But the more important announcement was one that gave me a little trouble, because I was told, you should say this. And I was told that for those of you who tweet, this will make sense. But for those of you who don't tweet, you may wonder whether it has something to do with the distribution of illegal smoking substances. Because the message is code, hash, LSE, strategy, all one word has nothing to do with those substances. Please don't let there be any misunderstanding. But we are very privileged tonight to have Richard here to speak. Because Richard is a preeminent figure in the world of strategy. Not simply in terms of uh, business strategy, but also in terms of military strategy as well, which is a rare combination. He started his career, perhaps slightly surprisingly, as an engineer working on the concept design for Voyager 1, which was launched, I think, in 1977, thereabouts? The mid-70s, yes. yes. in the mid-70s. Has been up in space now for some 34 or more years, and is now reaching the edge of our solar system. And Richard said that this was, in one respect, the first chance that he had to really think strategically about a problem. It was a design problem of uh, this Voyager. But he then got himself catapulted from the Jet Propulsion Laboratory to the Harvard Business School. And in no time at all had completed his doctorate and had started his travels around the world helping other people to understand business strategy. He spent three years, three or four years in Tehran um, in, and was there in 1973 when the hike in oil prices really did bring home to people the need to think more about the future. Later on he had taught at INSEAD and many other distinguished business schools around the world. Those of you who've had a chance to see the cover of the book, you can't quite see it here, is Richard is described as the strategist's strategist. 
Now, that is certainly true. Strategy wonks really do have great respect for Richard and all the pioneering work that he's done. But that term, strategist, strategist, does sort of perhaps imply that other people wouldn't be able to understand quite as much about what he is saying. And that is not the case. His book is wonderfully accessible. Uh, as you go through it, you're not only getting the concepts that he's wishing to develop cle clearly set out before you, but you actually get a feeling that you're sitting with him in discussions with Steve, Steve Jobs and other luminaries of the business world, as well as, of course, some of the top strategy people in the Pentagon and elsewhere. I think you have heard enough from me. Richard, may I invite you to take the floor? Please welcome our guest. Wow, what an introduction. Thank you. Uh, and it's a pleasure to be here at the London School of Economics and in London. Um, I had the privilege of living in London for about six months, way back when, when I was waiting to see if I would get my tenure. A stressful time, but I did enjoy the city a lot. I lived in France for three or four years and was over here a lot because when you live in the Fontainebleau Forest, you come to London for the sunshine. <laughs> this book, Good Strategy, Bad Strategy, came out of me because of a growing frustration in the gap between what one thinks of as strategy and what passes for strategy in so many companies, in so many politicians' mouths, in so many government agencies, in so many nonprofits, universities, school systems. They say they have a strategy, but they don't. They have something else, something I call bad strategy. And bad strategy is not the absence of strategy, it's an active force uh, of mistaken belief in how to think strategically and how to create strategies. And so this book aims to try to paint these two pictures. Also, for those of you who are studying here at the London School of Economics, you might know that business strategy today is conceptualized mainly in terms of economics, in terms of competitive positioning within an environment, a competitive environment of some kind, an industry structure, and that competitive advantage within that industry is the coin of the realm. What I'm going to do today is talk about a different view of strategy. I'm not going to say that the economics view is incorrect, because it's not. It's quite correct. But it is only one view. That if we're going to talk about strategy for a nation state, or a hospital, or a government agency, or a school, or a business firm. We have to use a language other than competing within an industry, because that's, that's only one possible regime. So that's the introduction to what we're going to do. I want to take you back to think about strategy to 1996. And a company called Apple was almost bankrupt. 
Now, this is the first time I had some interactions with Steve Jobs, who's recently passed away. This is Business Week cover, the fall of American icon. They're basically writing the obituary for Apple. And what has killed Apple is Windows 95. That Microsoft has come out with a graphical user interface, mice and windows, which was originally the Apple innovation. And given that, Apple's market share has taken a, an extreme dive. And in, in October of 1996, when Steve Jobs come back, comes back to take the position of CEO for no pay, Apple's two months from bankruptcy. That's how much cash it has. That's how quick the cash burn is. Now, the advice from outsiders, what was it? Wall Street people said do a deal. Get yourself bought by Sony. Get yourself bought by Sun. Get yourself bought by IBM. Get yourself bought by Hewlett Packard. You're basically out of business. The techies, the Silicon Valley people said, well, maybe you should sell your software to Microsoft. Or maybe you should invent something new and cool. Maybe you should do voice recognition or 3D. When Steve Jobs came back, he had a reputation of being a technical person, sort of, although he wasn't an engineer. The, the investment community wasn't very hopeful. They didn't know what was going to happen, but they didn't think much. They figured he would do a deal. Now, what did he do? He didn't sell himself to IBM. These are recommendations from Wired Magazine. He didn't do licensing his name to everyone. He didn't do these popular recommendations. What he did do might be called Business 101. First of all, he did a nice deal with Microsoft. He got them to give his company $150 million. Now, I would like to do that for Microsoft. How did he do that? Well, Microsoft was under antitrust threat for being a monopolist. Something that happens all the time in the US, a little bit more here, a little bit less here in the UK. Every time we have a successful company to get sued. Um, so Microsoft was under antitrust threat. And the last thing Microsoft wanted was for Apple to go bankrupt. So $150 million came in. That was a big help. That puts bankruptcy off by about six months. They had 16 models of desktop computer they were trying to sell. This is after the CEO had struggled to fix his company for three years. Steve Jobs cut the 15 models down to one. He threw them out. He said to me, my wife's sister asked me which computer to buy. And I looked at the computers we were selling, and I couldn't figure out which one to recommend. And he said, I'm the CEO. And if I can't figure it out, how can a customer figure it out? We only need one. So he dropped them. everything but one. He dropped all the printers and peripherals. No more printers, no more scanners, no more. He dropped all software development, all software. Canceled it, fired the software engineers. 
Everybody was amazed. Steve Jobs, he's the, he's the technical guy. He cut the hardware engineers back to the bone. In his view, they were making bad hardware. Why did he want so many hardware engineers? He cut six, five of the six national retailers. Uh, they had many retailers. He cut it back to one, it was CompUSA. He moved all the manufacturing to Taiwan. No longer would we make any Apple products in the United States. And he opened up a web store to sell direct to customers. Now, what do these actions all add up to? What's the strategy here? Excuse me? Keep it, keep it alive. At one level, you could say, hey, it's just cost cutting. It's business 101. Every single step he did here, and he did this very quickly in a matter of four months, he's aimed at survival. We're about to go bankrupt. We're not going to do R&D. We're not going to do product development. We're not going to have all these reasons. We're going to cut it back to a core that can survive. You cut off the extremities. Now, people were surprised. Why were they surprised? Because they don't expect to see anybody actually perform this kind of focused action. People are surprised when they see an actual strategy. They don't expect to see a strategy. We expect to see our leaders espouse fluffy goals and try to do everything. Oh, we're going to have everything. We're going to have better education and better health care and better social services and faster railways. We're going to have it all. And down that road lies nothing. That's not strategy. That's vacuous promises. Strategy is about focus. And everything that Jobs did here was focused on a single short-term objective, which was survival. That's it. That's what he was after here. And I sat down with him a year later. And I said, OK, you're survived. You've got 4% of the desktop market. The Windows Intel machines have still won. What's your long-term thing here? What's your real strategy? I understand the focus on survival. But... And he looked at me and he said, I'm going to wait for the next big thing. That's what he said. And I was, I was bowled over. I had just spent six months interviewing something like 75 executives in electronics, both in Europe and the United States. These were division managers and CEOs of electronics companies. And I had asked each one of them several simple questions. One, why? First question was, who's the most successful player in your industry, in your business. 
Everybody could identify that. They knew who it was. And then I'd ask them, how did that player get to be so successful? And of course, this was 1996, 97, 98, electronics, and they all had basically the same story. The story was something had changed, some new technology had appeared, some new window of opportunity had opened. And this company, the successful one, was the first one to jump through that in a, in a clever or an adroit way. So then I'd say, okay, what is your strategy? What are you guys doing? And they'd give me this long list of things they're doing. I'd say, oh, we are forming network relationships, and we are moving software to firmware, and we are doing 360-degree feedback, and we are transferring best practices. They're doing everything but what they said success comes from, which is waiting for a window of opportunity to open and then jumping through it full force with a huge amount of energy and focus to take, to take that next opportunity. That's what Jobs was saying. He was saying, I'm going to wait for the next big thing. That was an intelligent answer in, in that industry at that moment. And he did. The next big thing for him was the iPod. And then the iPhone. And then the iPad. And in each case, there was a wind of opportunity that opens and he went after it. Full force, full focus. That whole list of things. The software, the hardware, the manufacturing, the distribution, the design, all of those things focused on pushing that product through to, to excellence. That's strategy. A man named Chad Logan hired me to take a look at his company. He said, I need your help with strategy. Uh, please come by and talk to me and my people. I came by, and I said, Chad, you know, you're a graphics arts company. Uh, he inherited the company from his uncle. His uncle had passed away a couple years before. He was a high school football hero turned graphics artist, now manager. I said, what's, what's the strategic issue here? He said, well, we have a plan. I call it the 2020 plan. 20% growth in revenues a year and 20% after-tax profits. That's the plan. I said, oh, okay, those are great goals, but what's the strategy? How is this fairly ordinary graphics arts company going to do this? He said, well, one thing I learned as a football player is you have to have the will to win. That's the main thing. And we're just going to push until we achieve this. I said, well, do you have a strategy other than 2020? He said, yes, yes. He had a plaque, actually, up on the wall. It said, our strategies. We're going to be the graphics arts firm of choice. We will delight our customers. We'll, then the two key things, we'll grow our revenue 20% a year. We'll maintain a profit margin of 20% or better. We have a culture of commitment. Uh, we'll foster honest and open work environment. Uh, we'll support the broader community in which we serve. This is a little before everybody puts sustainability in a greener world in their strategies. But there's nothing here that's about strategy. It's all puff. It's all about 
things we think are nice plus results we'd like to achieve. That's bad strategy. Now, if Chad Logan and his graphics art company was the only place you saw this kind of thing, it wouldn't be a big deal. But in company after company, in hundreds, thousands of corporations, that's what you get. This is a corporation, uh, I was attending their, their big strategy meet they had. They had two or 300 senior managers from around the world, it's a big company. Uh, the picture, I had to clip from a US election campaign, uh, but there was a big release of balloons, which is why I clipped that picture. And the CEO, they had a, a movie of the, of the company's products, specially produced. They had specially uh, music uh, that was played. The CEO gave a speech about the new strategy. And, and the strategy was, we're going for global leadership, we're going for growth, and we're going for shareholder return. And then there were breakout sessions where individual managers sort of had to get together and buy in to this vision. Where's the strategy? It's not there. So you think, okay, well, this is a motivational thing. They must have a planning system behind that. They develop some methods. Yeah, they do. They have an annual strategic plan. It looks three years ahead. And every uh, September, they start a new one. And, and, and every June, they finish the annual strategic plan. And the first year of each annual strategic plan becomes next year's budget. What it is, it's a, a forecast of the economy and a forecast of their revenues and a forecast of their profits. It's a bunch of financial results. It's not a strategy. A strategy is not what you hope your performance will be. A strategy is about how you're going to get there. It's bad strategy. I developed the phrase bad strategy at a national security conference in 2007 where we were looking at fairly classified and unclassified documents. There were only nine of us in the room. There was a former head of CIA, a former head of the Department of Defense. I was the lightweight in the room. And their big complaint was there's no strategy. What we got is national goals. You know, we got democracy. We got to end terrorism. We want to not have people have weapons of mass destruction. But then you look down and you say, ah, OK, how are we going to do that? And he says, we will pursue a world in which there are no weapons of mass destruction in the hands of our enemies. OK, yeah, and then how are you going to do that? Doesn't say. Now, it didn't used to be that way. You used to have sort of the difficult, here's what we're going to do. We're going to focus on this. Bad strategy. Now, before you pull out your antidepressants, there are plenty of good strategies out there. And here's Lou Gerstner, his turnaround of IBM. When he walked in IBM in 1993, it was a difficult moment. IBM's mainframe business had gone like that. The PC business had commoditized. It was a mess. Lou Gerstner looked at it, 
his, the advisors came in, the Wall Street advisors, the investment banking advisors, everyone was prepared to split IBM up into pieces. The idea was that the computer industry had fragmented. That instead of integrated companies making all aspects of computing, like IBM and NCR and so on, there were now operating system companies, memory companies, hard disk companies, etc. And so IBM itself should fragment to match. And Gershner said, no, 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 that's crazy. I mean, if you fragment, you're going to lose the base of competence and you're going to lose the knowledge about all the different customers in the world. So what we're going to have to do is stop being an integrated company and turn and be a solutions provider. And if the solution is a non-IBM product, that's the way it's going to be. We're no longer, IBM was no longer going to be a company that pushes its own products. Now, to do that took eight, nine years. Most of the challenges he faced were organizational. They had fiefdoms all over the world that fought this. The head of IBM India, great guy, he rewrote the memos that he passed on to people that came in from headquarters. There was a huge amount of opposition to this, and it, it got handled. It got handled over time. This is a dramatic change in strategy. And everything that Gershner put in place, the, the firing of 75,000 people, the rehiring of many people, the, the huge reductions in the, in, in the internal processes and outsourcing many, many processes, the enormous pressure to change processes to become speedier and, and higher quality, all of that was focused around this goal of that kind of change. Now that, that's a strategy. He understood the problem and he devised an approach to dealing with the problem. He didn't say, oh, we're going to return to 10% growth. That's not a strategy. That's a hope. That's an aspiration. So what's a strategy? Excuse me. A bad strategy and a good strategy. I'm going to give you the hallmarks of bad strategy. First, four big hallmarks. I'm going to say, what's a good strategy? And then I'm going to emphasize some of those pieces for you. A bad strategy is when it's all goals. This is uh, an old graph, but it should be familiar to anybody who's looked at corporate uh, strategic plans. It's a perfect hockey stick. It shows profits down and then plan to go up. This is International Harvester's strategic plan in 1979 uh, and their, their attempt to grow profits over the next five years. Actually, in, 1998, in 1980 there and 81, they went bankrupt. They went out of business. So the plan didn't work. Why didn't the plan work? CEOs will say, oh, we had a great plan, but we had problems implementing it. Suggesting somehow that, that if only people had worked harder, these numbers could have been met. What this plan left out was the elephant in the elevator. International Harvester, at that point in time, had the worst labor relations probably of any company, certainly in the US, maybe the world. Harvester was the scene of the Haymarket riots back at the early 
late 1800s. Places, you know, workers were machine guns. And their labor relations were terrible. Their wage costs were high. Their work rules were disastrous. Their, their costs were higher than anybody else in the industry. It was amazing that they were alive. All right, given that environment, their strategy should have been to deal with that problem somehow. There's several ways you could try to do it. It's very difficult. You probably want to split yourself into separate companies from trucks and agricultural equipment and so on, because it's hard to change a big company. You probably want to try to move some of your plants out of where they exist. And you probably want to try to really dramatically change your labor relations problem. That's critical. That's your strategy. That's your bottleneck. Instead, they did this ridiculous financial forecast. They ignored their basic problem. So, strategy that's all goals, bad strategy. You know it's a bad strategy when it's all fluff. It's all vaporous concepts. There's a bank that I became acquainted with and they said, our strategy is customer-oriented disintermediation. They're a retail bank. Of course they're customer-oriented and disintermediation, that means you're a bank. So their strategy is, we're a bank. But they fluffed it up. How many times have you seen that? Fluff is not a strategy. Yeah, people confuse the idea of strategy with abstract words. It's not. Strategy is focus. You know what's a bad strategy? When there's no problem. If we go back to International Harvester, the problem there was they didn't address the problem. Lots of bad strategies. The key thing about them is it's all about the future. It's not about what our challenge is. It's all about where we hope to get. But the problem that we're facing, every organization, every country, every government, every business, every nonprofit, every school has a challenge of some kind, some essential set of forces that they're struggling with. And unless you identify that and focus on it, and think about it and analyze it, you can't develop a strategy. And after you develop a strategy, other people can't evaluate whether it's good or bad unless you said, stated what's the problem that it's trying to solve. You know, the Obama administration wants to have a jobs strategy in the United States. That's great. Well, why aren't there jobs? What happened to the economic growth? Unless you figure that out, you can't have a job strategy. The job strategy has to treat the disease. It has to deal with how come economic growth is flatlined. It isn't flatlined because there isn't enough stimulus. You can't stimulate an economy every month forever. We've been stimulating the US economy every quarter for 11 years. No, that's not a stimulus anymore. When you, when you give someone amphetamines every quarter for 11 years, they become comatose. Maybe that's why we're flatlined. You know, when you drop interest rates down to 1% and keep it there for four or five years, you get huge property bubbles and asset bubbles. And you think, oh, I'm stimulating the economy. 
So you don't get economic growth from stimulus. And the lack of economic growth is not because you don't have a stimulus. Stimulus might conceivably be the right response to a recession, but the fact is countries like ours that have mine, that have run their debt up so high by constantly stimulating the economy, there's no, there's no slack left. You've already done that. All right, so you need to analyze what's happened to the economy. And one of the things that's happened is we don't have any technologies that are employing anybody. All through the 20th century, every invention we had created huge amounts of employment, whether it's railroads or airplanes or electricity or chemicals or television or computers or automobiles or roads. Millions and millions of people were employed manufacturing, distributing, and fixing that stuff. Google employs 10,000 people. That's it. That's a small town. It's a village. What about everybody else? YouTube. How many people work for YouTube? Hardly anybody. It just, it's a bunch of servers. And so our new technologies, while they're very exciting, they don't employ anyone. And the old technologies are all are being shifted abroad. So that's a problem. When you begin to identify the problem, you begin to think about strategies for somehow coping with it. You know it's a bad strategy when it's a dog's dinner. Dog's dinner is a long list of things. That's what communities produce. 75 items that we have to pay attention to. Clean up the sidewalks, fix the seats, that kind of thing. I call it a dog's dinner. What's a strategy? This is back to basics. I'm not getting into the five forces. I'm not getting into how to innovate. I'm getting back to basics. Legendary coach Vince Lombardi in the United States, football coach, at the beginning of the season, he used to hold up a football and point to it and say to the Green Bay Packers in their first training session of the year, gentlemen, that's a football. He's getting back to basics. He's reminding people of what's going on. What are we there for? The basics of strategy is a strategy is a coherent mix of policy and action designed to surmount a difficult, usually high stakes, challenge. That's what it's about. That's what it is. It's not an industry analysis. It's not a goal. It's not a wish list. It's a design of policy and action to deal with a high stakes challenge. Good strategy has something I call a kernel. The kernel isn't the whole thing, but the kernel is like the, the center of a seed. It is an essential thing from which a strategy grows. The kernel has three components. Diagnosis, which I've talked about. What's, what's the problem here? What's the nature of the challenge? Why do we have flatlined economic growth? Why do we have a European debt crisis? Why are 40% of the kids dropping out of school in the Los Angeles school district? What is the nature of the problem? And you will find over and over again that when you enter these arenas that people are putting forth ideas about what to do with no diagnosis. Oh, let's hire better teachers. Oh, let's spend more on books. Well, wait a minute. Is that the problem? 
Is the problem that we don't have enough books or better books? Is it that the teachers aren't smart enough? I had some dumb teachers and I learned. Don't know, but you've got to do the diagnosis. Guiding policy is how are we going to solve this problem? What's our basic approach? What's our basic approach? Now these are decisions. To some extent your diagnosis is a decision. You choose a diagnosis. There may be multiple ways of diagnosing a problem. A social scientist will always diagnose it in a way that has maximum causal explanation, but often no levers for change. Nothing you can do about it. A good strategist will try to find a diagnosis that suggests here's something you can do to change things. And then coherent action is the third element. Those three elements, if they're not all present, they don't have a strategy that's as powerful as it could be. I'm going to cover seven or eight key things to look for to create powerful and good strategies. One, that I've said over and over again, I'm going to just say it again, diagnose the challenge. What do we got here? Uh, I talked about why is there a debt crisis in Europe? Why are students dropping out? Why is there a debt crisis in Europe? What is the problem? You run out of money. What's the problem? Let's just take Greece. There's the, there's, the, there's the key hot button right now. What's going on there? Greece can't pay back its debt. Why did a country borrow more money than it can pay back? How'd that happen? Think about it. How's that happen? Did they make a mistake? Did they not do their sums? What's going on there? So you're going to say, well, they anticipated growth that didn't happen. Greece hasn't had any economic growth for 15 years. Neither is Italy. So anyway, they're borrowing in the anticipation that things will get better, or they're borrowing if you want to be a little bit less sanguine about it, they're borrowing in order to buy votes. And then hoping something will happen in the future to take care of it. That's sort of why American administrations borrow money. They borrow money to buy votes and hope that somehow in the future someone will cover the debt. All right, so that's half of the question. The other half is, why is anyone lending the money? Why would you lend money to Greece? What are you, nuts? <laughs> it's the bankers. There's bankers in France and Germany that are lending money to Greece. Why are they doing it? Well, I guess if you're an economist, because economists always believe people are rational, uh, they figure they'll get bailed out. I'm not so sure about that. Bankers I saw lending money to Greece, what they saw is that they could get a little half a 1% extra yield. And that was it. It's like the mouse following a little trail of cheese into the trap. Oh, this tastes good. This tastes good. Bang! <laughs> it's myopic. And then there's other elements of the problem. But if we look at the problem, 
it's not going to be solved by bailing out banks or bailing out Greece. It's a, it's a systemic behavior, Paul, of national governments within the EU itself and with banks. If you want to fix it, more money is just a palliative. It's just like taking aspirin for cancer. <coughs> Once you do a diagnosis, you can begin to confront what actually needs to be done. Make your actions coherent. Focus is the heart of strategy. 216 BC. Hannibal. Hannibal's taken on the, the Romans at Cannae. <laughs> Hannibal's got about 50, 55,000 troops. The Romans have, we're not sure. We think somewhere between 80 and 120,000 soldiers. We think they, they actually tried to minimize the number after they were beaten so badly. Hannibal had been raging around the Italian peninsula. His idea was to, was to beat the Romans over in a number of battles and, and then sue for a settlement. What he wanted was trading rights in the southern Mediterranean. He wanted Carthage to be able to, to resume its trading. He figured that by military adventure he could get that kind of a deal. The battle of Cannae shapes up the Romans decide to face him, face him down. They sent a, a record six legions under uh, Paulus and Varro, two consuls. And Hannibal arranges his troops in an arc. They're the red blocks there. In the middle are the, the soldiers he's picked up in Spain and Gaul. And at the flanks, he's got his Carthaginian heavy infantry. And then he's also got cavalry on the right and the left. Now in ancient warfare, cavalry's job was to go out and defeat the other guy's cavalry and then race around picking up loot and killing stragglers, doing stuff like that. Hannibal bowed his troops out and when the two armies came together the bow began to flatten. And it flattened and then it bowed inward. And the Romans, seeing this, figured, oh, the Spaniards and Gauls are retreating. That means we won. So here they are with the bow flat and the Romans pushing the center back. And it looks like victory. And Romans begin to shout their victory cries and push together in the center to break through the center. That would be a great strategic victory. The center bows back even further. They don't seem to notice that here and here the Carthaginian heavy infantry is not really involved. They're just hanging around. The bow pushes even further back and then stops. And these soldiers from Gaul and Spain, instead of sort of backing up, suddenly turn and hold. Some few reinforcements come in. The heavy infantry from the side comes in. The cavalry unexpectedly comes in from the rear and closes with the Roman soldiers. The Romans are now encircled. Because they're encircled, the Romans in the middle 
of the mass are ineffective. The only effective fighters are the one on the edge of the blob. And so suddenly the numbers have been reversed. Hannibal's got more effective fighters than the Romans. The Romans are mostly facing the wrong way. They're jammed together so hard that many of them can't lift their weapons. They stand there, we think, for three to four hours as they slowly all die. 55 to 60,000 Romans died that day in Cana, more than any other battle in history before or since, more than at the Somme, more than at Gallipoli, more than at Gettysburg. It was the biggest military disaster in history. And so it's been studied. What happened here? What was Hannibal? Now, you could say it was a bit of luck on Hannibal's part, but the trouble with that is he did this over and over again for 10 years. He's called the father of strategy because he taught through these kind of destructive battles of Romans to think strategically instead of just charging ahead and trying to fight. You look at this strategy and you, it had almost nothing to do with business. So I'm going to have to go up many levels of abstraction. But if you look at what he did, it was a coordination in time and space that was unanticipatedly clever and adroit. It was a coordination of forces, a design where the Romans' own strength, their own courage, their own nobility was turned against them. Strategy exploits your predictable nature of, of the world, whether it's your enemy or the weather or business cycles, and it co you coordinate your forces. You coordinate things around what you're trying to accomplish. The competitive advantage of strategy is that focus, that coordination. If everybody did it, it wouldn't give you an advantage. But as I said at the very beginning, it's surprising when we see a strategy. Here's Hannibal, statue in the Louvre, semi-modern. He's counting the rings of the 80 senators that were killed at Cannae. Now, the Romans gradually recover from this. It takes them a long time. They, they outlaw the word peace. Every male is brought into military service. And it takes him 10 years to finally chase down Hannibal. Never really defeat him in battle. What they finally do is go back to Carthage and burn it. Focus, coordination. Let me show you a company doing this. This is a flight simulator in the early 1980s. To build a flight simulator, you have to do 3D graphics. You have to build a mathematical model of the environment you want to fly in, and then you have to have a, a virtual camera looking at that, and you have like a TV screen that, that says, this is what you would see out of that cockpit, and you have a joystick where you fly that space shuttle. Complicated to do. 3D graphics. In the early 90s, it became clear that we could begin to do 3D graphics on personal computers. But nobody knew what it would be good for. People opined, well, maybe what's going to happen here is we'll have 3D tours of foreign cities. Be able to go around Paris with your 
virtual camera. Or surgeons will look inside bodies and learn with 3D stuff. Or architects will sell designs with 3D graphics. But that's not what happened. What happened is 3D graphics was pulled into the market by the invention of violent video games. This one right here is Doom uh, from 1995. Oop, let's see if I can get it to play. All right, so this is a video game where you run around with a shotgun and shoot monsters. And as you can see, the graphics quality is not great, but on the other hand, once you get into it, it can be terrifying. Why does this thing not want to go? Okay. So in 1996, a company named 3DFX brought out the first card that you could plug into a PC and make this stuff work fast. Now, if you were a teenage boy killing your friends on the internet by playing Doom, where you were one of these guys running around and your friends were other guys running around, you're shooting at each other. If your video card isn't fast and isn't capable, you get killed constantly. So in order to avoid that, you want to buy a video accelerator. And 3DFX came out with the first effective one. SGI is a company that had invented all these concepts. Jim Clark, the CEO, left to form Netscape. The new CEO from Hewlett Packard said, our goal is 50% of your growth. And he ignored this burgeoning market. He was after workstations. NVIDIA, the company I want to focus on, brought out a, a, a card that was aimed at this, it failed. It was the wrong technology. They went back to the drawing board, they put together a strategy committee, they thought about the nature of the problem, and they came up with a way of dealing with it, and dealing with the fact that Intel was about to enter the business. They tried to understand the situation, their diagnosis, their understanding was that these gamers, they'll They'll pay for almost any power we can deliver. They really want high quality graphics. That the industry works on an 18 month cycle. That's basically Moore's law turned into an industrial machine. And every 18 months, Intel and everybody else comes out with a new architecture based on smaller, smaller sized pieces of chips that Intel CPUs on one chip. So as they get more and more, as, as, their, as their designs get more compact and smaller, they tend to put more chips on a wafer and try to reduce the cost. The people at NVIDIA reasoned that the 3D graphics is spread over many chips, over software, and what we can do is gradually push this stuff onto one chip, more integration, and by doing that, we can move this performance much faster than Moore's Law. Two to three times faster than Moore's Law. And they believe they can introduce a new version, a new chip, every six months. Very tough, because the industry works on an 18-month cycle. 
To introduce a new chip every month, every six months, however, if we look at the technology frontier, the blue curve, and we say, okay, here's Intel, the red line, going along every 18 months with a new chip, we can, we can see that Intel is going to be at the frontier here, then 18 months later, their new chip will be at the frontier, and then 18 months later, their, their new chip will be at this frontier. If you go every six months, you'll be at the frontier more frequently. And on average, you'll be a higher performance in the market. You'll also have more buzz if, if the market can absorb it. So what they did, and here's the key thing, the focus, like Hannibal, the different moves in time and space to make this work. They put together three overlapping teams. Each was going to work on an 18-month cycle, but each was six months offset from the other. So every six months, there'd be a new design coming out. Wow, every six months, a new design. The trouble with that is any kind of delay screws it all up. It's a mess. The biggest and worst delays you get are when you put a design out to a semiconductor fabricator and they, it comes back, they send you five or ten chips, their first run, and you put them in the, you plug them in, and they don't work. Oh my God, now what? You gotta figure out why they don't work and send them back. Usually it's some kind of design flaw in the electrical characteristics. NVIDIA, with their second round of venture capital, built the world's largest simulation facility to simulate the electrical characteristics of these things so there wouldn't be any rework. To build the software, typically the way the industry worked is you got the chip and then you program the software on a chip. NVIDIA said we can't wait. We've got to build complex emulation facilities that, that emulate what this chip is going to be like and so we could start the software development. The way the industry worked was people developed these chips and then they sold them to board makers. Companies like ATI, or companies like Champion, or companies with other names. And they would put the chip in their board and they would develop the software. And NVIDIA said, no, we can't do that. That's too slow. We're going to have to develop our own software, and we're going to have to go around the board makers. We're going to find no-name board makers in Asia who are willing to put our chips on the board and our software on the board. We don't want to get in the board business. It's profitless. And they did a bunch of other things, but this is the core. NVIDIA's graphics chips became more and more complicated, faster and faster. They became more complicated than Intel CPUs there, about 1999, 2000. They continue to be the most complex chips in anybody's computer. The world's fastest computer was put together uh, a year and a half ago by a group of engineers in Beijing and what they used was NVIDIA graphics chips to build it. These are amazing machines. NVIDIA raced ahead of its competitors. 3DFX went bankrupt. Intel tried twice to get into this business of 3D graphics and twice it failed. It could not deal with a shift from its 18-month cycle to a six-month rapid evolution cycle. It's a big company, a technical company, very competent company, and this is a small 
small market compared to its major market, and it just couldn't make the shift. So we see that the key things here in a successful strategy, the focus around accomplishing something and the anticipation that a competitor has certain limitations, has certain behavioral or structural limitations. This is uh, a modern video game, Modern Warfare 3. I'm not in favor of violence, but look at the graphics. This is all triangles. Millions and millions and millions of triangles that people create these images out of. It's not a movie. Number three, insight. Strategy is about insight. There's no way around it. It's not about looking at a matrix or a graph or a curve and picking your strategy. It's not about the eight boxes and your strategy is the one on the left. It's just not that way. Any more than a, a, a great film director, it's about pick one of the four plots. Anybody tries to sell you that, it's a fake. It's an insight. Number five, number four, you've got to create proximate objectives. Strategy is not about the far future. It has to do with the future. It has to do with us getting to the future and not being stuck. But the way we get to the future is doing something now, doing something now to push through the challenges and problems we have. A proximate objective is one that's feasible. It's one that we can actually achieve in the near term. I like near term, one year, 18 months, two years max. It doesn't have to be near term, but it has to be pretty feasible. What do I mean by pretty feasible? A reasonable expectation that it can happen. What do I mean by reasonable? Well, you know what I mean. It means not blue sky. The United States has a goal of stopping the drug trade. Well, that's blue sky. It ain't going to happen, ever. John Kennedy, his goal of putting someone on the moon by the end of the 60s was a proximate objective. How do I say that? This is often held up as some kind of big, hairy, audacious goal or a giant leap into the unknown. No, it wasn't. We know how to put people on the moon. You want to put people on Saturn right now? We can do it. It's just expensive. You put them in a big steel tank, you stick some gas in there, some oxygen, put some food in there and send it off. The technical problem we had to solve to do this the real technical problem, first you need big rockets, but secondly we needed a throttleable rocket so you could land on them. You needed something to get throttled because there's no air there. You can't do parachutes. Why did he do this? He did it for strategic reasons. He asked the vice president, what should we do to beat the Russians? 
The vice president had no idea, so he wrote to our captive Nazi rocket scientist, Werner von Braun, and said, what can we do to beat the Russians? And von Braun wrote back this letter, April 29, 1961. Do we have a chance of beating the Soviets and putting a laboratory in space or a trip around the moon? And von Braun says, no. They got bigger rockets. Their rockets are this big, our rockets are this big, they're going to beat us in a lot of things. But, he said, if we look beyond that, if we look to rockets that aren't this big or this big, but are this big, then, because we have more industrial base than they do, we can probably build that rocket faster, and that rocket, it'll take people to the moon and back. And so that's a goal we can beat them at. One month later, John Kennedy gives a speech. He says, we're going to go to the moon and back. Approximate objective, it was feasible, and very strategic. By looking at that very big rocket, he figured we could beat the Soviet Union. That's the kind of rocket it took to go to the moon, the one on the right. And back, these are the rockets we had when he made the speech. That's the USA rocket, the little tiny one there, and these were the Soviet Union's rockets. So that was the idea. The idea was, well, we just have to make a bigger rocket. That's, that's not rocket science. <laughs> That's just big rockets. Ride the wave. Great companies come out of technical change. They come out of changes in the world that you take advantage of and ride. People could see for a long time that computing and telecommunications were somehow going to converge. This is NEC's vision of that put together in the late 70s. And the vision is sort of that there's going to be this big battle between telecommunication companies and computer companies. Well, it didn't work out that way. What happened was microprocessors upset the whole, the whole thing. And companies like Cisco, Systems, and Microsoft were able to ride that wave of change adroitly. If you look at Apple, the wave of change Steve Jobs was riding was a shift from desktop to mobile platform. Links matter. Chain links are situations where to have excellence, you have to have a bunch of things all work. Any one of them doesn't work, the excellence isn't there. Just like a chain is only as strong as the weakest link, in a chain link technology or chain link system, each piece has to work right. It's not a production function, it's additive. It's not like if you don't have enough capital, you can stick in more labor. Both all the factors of production have to be of high quality or equal quality for the thing to work. I'm going to skip over some analysis here. That's expect entropy and inertia would be my seventh principle, good strategy. Understand that the real world out there, things are a mess. Competitors are not alert. Your own company may be your biggest challenge. It's hard to get things to change. Other companies don't change easily. Other nations don't change easily. Expect entropy and inertia. Here, for example, is General Motors in 1919. That's its product line. 
Ford, its competitor, has got the Model T down there. These are the price bands. And General Motors is a car conglomerate in 1919. It's got Chevrolet, Oakland, Oldsmobile, Sheridan, Scripps Booth, Buick, Cadillac. It was put together by acquisitions. Pierre DuPont, Alfred Sloan, senior managers, DuPont tells Sloan, put together a product policy for this company. Figure out what it should do. It takes him three months of hard work, of thinking. And he writes the product policy of the company, and this is what he comes up with. Each division should have its own price category. Chevrolet competes with Ford. Oakland, which eventually becomes Pontiac, is priced above Chevrolet. Buick above Oakland. Oldsmobile above Buick. Cadillac above Oldsmobile. Each division has its own price land that it lives in. This concept of what General Motors was about catapulted this company into being the world's largest industrial corporation by 1950. In 1956, you could walk down any suburban street in the United States and tell who lived there by the car out front. Ordinary people drove Chevrolets. The foreman drove a Pontiac. The manager of Buick and the CEO of Cadillac. What happened over the years? Here's the situation in 2008 as General Motors goes bankrupt. Look at its product line. Is there any clear pattern there of which product or which brand is which? Toyota above looks more like General Motors in 1921. In 2008, General Motors has 15 products at the $22,000 how does that happen? How does that happen? How can you have corporate strategy year in and year out and let your products become so undifferentiated? As in when Steve Jobs walked into Apple and said, oh, there's 15 computers here, I don't know which one to tell someone to buy. It just happens, and I call it entropy. This happens because the original plan gets mushed over time. It gets disorganized. You can imagine that if you're in the Buick division, you're sitting there and saying, geez, our job is to have this high-priced car, but you know, if we had a car that was lower-priced, we could sell more units and get a bigger bonus. So let's push headquarters to allow us to have a lower-priced car. Now, headquarters' job is the same job that parents have when the 13-year-olds come in and say, we want to have beer at the party. Headquarters' job is to say, no. That's not the way it's done around here. Your job is to stay up there. But over time, it's hard to say no. And Buick starts putting out cheaper cars, and Chevrolet starts putting out expensive cars, and so on, until everything is mushed together. Now, it's not only just mushed together, but the company is competing with itself. All these different models are price competing with each other. And each of them requires their own advertising budget, advertising the same price point and the same characteristics. So they're like a whole industry that's become price competitive through their own internal craziness. Entropy. Good strategy, bad strategy. 
It's hard to do, but it's not that hard to describe. Bad strategy is fluff. It's here's where we're going to go without how we're going to get there. It's not defining the nature of the challenge so that when you put forward a plan, no one can assess whether it's a good plan or bad plan because you don't know what it's trying to deal with. You don't know what the difficulty is. Good strategy has a lot of characteristics. A few that I put forward, primary one, focus energy. Don't disperse it in all different directions. Focus particularly on approximate objective, something critical that can be accomplished in the near future. Good strategy, bad strategy, thanks for your attention. Thank you so much for that fascinating presentation. The lectures, the public lectures at LSE uh, are normally characterized by the audience being very interested in what the speaker is saying. But I have rarely seen so many people taking notes while someone has been speaking. And I take that as a great compliment to your uh, performance. We do have time for questions, about 20 minutes. So if any of you would like to pick up particular points with uh, Richard, please do. The gentleman in the middle there. Yes, my name is Mr. Stefano Bonfa. I'm from Oxford Sustainable Development, dealing with strategies. My question is, yes, it's, I appreciated your approach. What I would like to have, uh, let's say, more opinion on this concept of focusing. How you can focus in, in something once you don't know in the, in the diagnosis phases? In other words, in order to have the problem, we have to have the information, we have to have the data. And then from the data, you can develop what you call a policy or strategy, and then you can start focusing. So the first step in your approach, I think, has not so much emphasized. Second question is, yes, I do appreciate that you push about technology. I do work with IBM. IBM has developed, I mean, has developed this concept of information management system, where he focuses mainly on how you manage the information from the bottom until the strategies. Thank you. You know, part of your question is how do you develop effective policy in a world of uncertainty, where you don't really know enough to have an accurate diagnosis? Is that my A good strategist is a bit like a scientist. You're working with empirical data. You're forming a strategy. It's fundamentally a hypothesis about what's going to work. We'd like to have a hypothesis that we're sure is going to work. But we rarely, rarely are vouchsafed that kind of certainty. Uh, what we try to do in the, in, in the best of cases is develop a, a, some, some tests, some experimental data from the world that tells us more about what's the nature of the problem. Uh, companies that, that can have multiple 
countries or multiple outlets or multiple stores or multiple initiatives and see which one is working better, they can move more quickly. Um, in, in, in government and, and in policy areas, uh, collecting information sufficient to analyze the nature of the problem uh, is, uh, is costly. The worst strategic situations are where there's a huge amount of uncertainty and we only get one try. Because you know, then we have to have an accurate diagnosis, we have to formulate a plan, we have to carry it out, and it either works or it doesn't. There's no in-between incremental improvement. So we, we try as strategists to, to create situations where we're able to make these, these improvements over time rather than the one big leap. I hope that helps. Other questions? Yes, the lady in there. There's a microphone coming to you. Hi, I'm Nimisha. I'm a student at the NSC. And uh, what I wanted to ask you is that if you had to recommend the United States of America, uh, give some recommendations of what they should do in, uh, to get out of the current economic mess they are in, what would they be? <laughs> The government has to become more efficient. It is incredibly inefficient in what it does, which has created a voter, a group of voters, a large group of voters, that do not trust it to do anything. They see it spend a million dollars a year to put one soldier in Afghanistan. What is that? They see it throw money at banks, build trillions. They see it when there's a horrible flood, a catastrophe in New Orleans. The, the federal government can't get its trucks there. The truck drivers didn't have permits to cross state lines. I mean, this is incompetence and inefficiency at a large level. The government has to become more efficient so that we can trust it to do things. The government should provide health care to everybody. But does anybody trust it to do that in a way that isn't politically skewed are horribly inefficient. So there's, a, there's an efficiency issue. Secondly, I have to say, basic thing is the dollar's too high. The dollar is just way too high. That we have priced American labor out of the world market with a high dollar. Now why is it so high? We got interest rates at zero. Why is the dollar so high? My economist friends can't explain it, but that's the thing that has to be tackled. The dollar is way too high. Uh, it, it keeps us from, from competing effectively with the rest of the world in exports. I mean, there are other issues you can get at. You can get at infrastructure and fast trains and education, but primarily no, none of those things can be solved by a government that's inefficient and does things totally politically rather than in some kind of reasonable way. So those are the two key problems. The key problems are the dollar's too high and the government's inefficient. Maybe that. Uh, yes, I'm wondering if you might provide an illustration or two or comment on where good strategies might be uh, employed, being employed currently at the state or local level in the states, and what kind of political leadership it takes to employ them? 
Well, it takes imaginative political leaders. It takes political strength. Political power is the power to do things on your own that aren't just what your supporters want. So it takes some political power. Uh, in my state, uh, where I have, uh, I call it my vacation home, but I try to spend more time there than just vacation, is New Mexico. That's one of the poorest states in the United States. It's basically very rural. Uh, it's very beautiful. One reason I like it, it's a giant state with only three million people. So it's empty. I find that charming. A lot of empty space. The governor put in, the last governor, put in a very interesting set of policies about moving film production to New Mexico. And what's interesting about it is they didn't just put in a tax break. They put in a tax break for film production. But they also put in college courses on film technology, college courses on film editing, college courses on, and they put together you know, studios where you can do this kind of work. So in, in the sense of focus, there was four, five, six different actions and policies, all of which happened in a fairly short period of time, focused around making New Mexico a, a, a location, not only a choice for filming, not just going there because of the interesting settings, but as a place where the skills were going to be developed and the skills would reside. And, okay, that's a pretty cool strategy. It's fairly simple. Um, and it's working fairly well. I mean, it also depends on Hollywood being uh, uh, uncompetitive, increasingly uncompetitive, increasingly hostile to its own business. Hello, my name is Alex. As you said, Steve Jobs told you that the strategy, the strategy was to wait, and I can call him a great leader. To have a good strategy and to succeed in it, does the, the organization or a country need a great leader to do that? Because if there are many of the managers and so on, this creates uncertainty. So basically I'm from Russia and there's only Putin and that's, that's why this question is a bit interesting for me as well. You know, hopefully nation states don't need complex strategies. You know, unless they're going to go to war, you should basically provide the hygiene factors that allow everybody to get on with life. You know, decent infrastructure, a certain amount of education, stuff like that. Um, do we need a great leader? I'm not going to say that. The trouble with great leaders is sometimes they're horrible and sometimes they're good. It's like monarchs. You know, there are moments when monarchs create golden ages because they're long-lived and they're really smart. But once you go to monarchy, then you're going to have some really terrible monarchs that take you down into hell. So you don't want to commit yourself to that system. What a strategy is, it is an imposition on a system. In other words, if we look at a, at a system, either a country or an organization or a business, and we say, what will this business do over the next three to five years if left to its own devices? We can sort of figure out what it's going to do. Strategy is to change that, is to, is to create some kind of coherence between disparate pieces 
Nokia was at one point the top of the pack in smartphones. And then it began to sort of let each piece of the business do its own thing. And now it's flailing. But it isn't so much you need a great leader as you need this coherence. And you need the people involved to believe that there needs to be some coherence. It, it's like a symphony orchestra. There has to be some kind of tempo that is set. It doesn't mean it's an autocrat. There's something going on besides everybody doing their own thing. That's the nature of strategy. Richard, you were saying the other evening when we were talking about this, that the power of someone to take an idea with a sort of clarity of thought and begin to sort of impose it upon an organization, that was the, the value of their contribution, was to have the idea and the strength within that system to get people to pay attention to it's, that. It's human nature. When we form organizations or nation states or anything, for the separate pieces, the geographies, to go off and pursue their own interests. And that's freedom. That's, we like that. We want people to pursue their own interests. But there's certain kinds of things that are lost when we do that. And strategy is about trying to identify the key thing that we don't want to lose and trying to get that coherence around that. It's terribly important in military affairs, less important in national affairs, very important in, 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 in fast-growing businesses. Um, pulling in different directions dilutes the competitive punch, and you lose. Now, I know there are questions down in the front rows, but I do see a gentleman at the back, at the middle there. Yes, thank you. Yeah, I would be very interested in having your perception on the um, strategic consulting profession and uh, your views on their contribution in putting together good or bad strategies for their clients. Well, strategy consulting is all over the place. There are high quality firms and high quality people and then there's scams. I've got a, uh, an email, and I actually meant to put it in my, my deck, and I, I wasn't able to get it in there. And it's an advertisement to go to a meeting in Los Angeles last week, at which a gentleman is presenting what he calls the 60-minute strategy. And the 60-minute strategy is three steps. First step, Maybe it's two steps, I'm trying to remember. But the first step is to imagine the best possible thing that can happen. And then the second step is to write down a plan around that. And the third is to give it to senior management. That's strategy. Now that's a scam. But people want to believe that there's a magical way to get success. Books about how to succeed, that's what I should have written. It's so easy. The secrets of success. Three secrets of success. Number one, aim high. If you aim low, you'll never wind up high. Number two, never give up. If you give up, you'll never get there. Number three, don't think too much. 
<laughs> so you won't question number one and two. <laughs> that could be a bestseller. But in terms of value to someone who has a difficult challenge, that's about as useful as saying, go carve your company name on a tree and bury a dead cat under the tree. It's superstition. And yet, the human heart has an affinity for that stuff. We hope that it's that easy. Never give up. I'm coming back to the front soon, but there's a gentleman at the back. Well, thank you very much. Um, uh, my name is Ayo, and I run a product and packaging design consultancy here in London, servicing East and West Africa, a very small company. I'm very curious uh, to know what your opinion is uh, about developing strategies in SME, for, in S, within SMEs, servicing uh, markets that are very asymmetrical. Well, I hope your company gets bigger. <laughs> hopes, hopes. Hope. What's the problem in developing countries? Why is it so hard? I mean, I'm 68 years old, and developing countries have been developing my whole life. <laughs> we begin to need a different word. The problems, if you look at my chapter in my book about chain link systems, and a piece on my website about that, I think that the issues are chain linked in developing countries. That means when you fix one thing, it's not good enough. That you say, oh, let's have better ports. Well, the better ports don't help if you don't have better roads. Say, okay, let's have better ports and better roads. Well, that doesn't help if there are pirates who are stealing the stuff on the roads. You say, let's get safe roads and better ports. You say, well, that doesn't help if the government's corrupt. So let's get rid of the corruption and the fix the ports and fix the roads and get rid of the pirates. Well, that doesn't help because the imported products are putting the local people out of business. So there's, there's problem after problem after problem. And it's very hard to deal with chain link systems unless you get a bunch of things moving together to improve. It's just like an automobile company. You can improve the design and you can improve the marketing, but if the car falls apart, the manufacturing is faulty, it, no one wants to buy the car. Um, on the other hand, you know, some forms of excellence out there are of the opposite. It's where you have five or six things all working well, and that's what's so hard for other people to copy. And so I call that a chain-linked situation. And one of the reasons it's, it's hard is because efforts to fix one part don't repay their investment costs. You have to fix a bunch of parts to get a result. And I know that's very vague and very abstract. But, you know, I've, I've worked with people in developing world and that's sort of what I see is there's so many different pieces that have to be put together to work and that's the issue does that help <laughs> 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 
Well, I, not, not, I'm afraid we'll have to move on to another questioner. Um, in the front row, please. In the second row here, please. And then we'll have time just for one last question. Hello, I'm Shui, I'm a student in LSC IDEA. Um, even if a strategy focuses on focus the resources on a very clearly and uh, correctly identified problem, it would somehow turn out to be a failure. So my question is, um, do you equate good strategy with success and bad strategy with failure? Thank you. No, no, I don't. I mean, bad strategy can succeed and good strategy can fail. Uh, the world is uncertain. Uh, companies succeed from luck sometimes. They succeed because look at Groupon. I mean, Groupon's strategy is to try to get a lot of money from stock investors. That's it. They don't have a sustainable business. But what's wrong with trying to become a billionaire? Um, so maybe that's the strategy, but it's, it's flaky from a business policy viewpoint or a business strategy viewpoint. Um, so companies, the arc of companies is that they usually do something right. Countries do something right, and then they begin to succeed, and they begin to grow, and they begin to have all sorts of great things happen. And as I said the other night, uh, then you get in the habit of extrapolating that. You begin to think, oh, strategy is looking at next year's increment of growth, and next year's increment of new wealth. You know, that's what we do. It's happening. We're growing. We're great. And you lose the habits of critical evaluation because you don't need to because the rain is falling and the sun is shining and the harvests are coming in and it's 15 years down the road or 10 years down the road suddenly there's a blight and a drought and you say, what, 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 what's happening? Let's project future growth. Oh yeah, okay. You project future growth. Next year there's another blight, another drought. Things aren't working. You've, you've forgotten about how to deal with adversity. You've forgotten that you should be putting grain aside for the bad years. Remember the Bible, seven fat years, seven lean years? This is not like new wisdom. But we forget to do it because things are good. And we don't put aside resources for when things are not good. That's, it's the nature of the human condition. So, one of the things about the human condition is that there is this cycle in the affairs of people, where good times lead eventually to sloth and decadence, which leads to bad times, which leads maybe to a strengthening in the return of good times. And maybe it just leads to Easter Island. The last question. Hi, my name is Luke. Um, just one quick question. You touched on it slightly in your uh, speech earlier. Um, as a strategist, um, what do you feel is a strategy or maybe have they even thought about strategy in uh, central banks, governing bodies and countries throwing money at the economic problem at the moment, i.e. QE1, QE2, probably QE3, 4, 5 and so on? I think it's, uh, it's a fantasy. Uh, they started out throwing money at banks because they, they, they formed a, uh, an erroneous belief that the problem was banks weren't lending money. It is now clear, and it was clear then, 
that it wasn't that banks weren't lending money, it's people didn't want to borrow. So throwing money into banks to increase liquidity didn't do anything. Then they put interest rates down to zero, which really hurts guys like me that save money all their life and now I can't earn anything. They sort of wanted that to happen. What they wanted people to do is get their money out of safe things and put them into risky things and drive up prices. Because their theory was if they drove up asset prices, people would feel richer and go out and spend. Well, that hasn't worked either and it really doesn't make much sense. I think central banks should stop trying to fine-tune economies. I think they shouldn't bail out banks. I think if a bank makes a lot of bad loans, the banks should be nationalized. The managers should be fired. It should be recapitalized and spun off. The Swedes did this, and they did it with great skill and speed. Uh, I was a consultant to some national people at the time, and I suggested that they use Guantanamo Bay to take the banks through rapid bankruptcies, but uh, I, I was left out of the room. But the, the issue is not Guantanamo Bay. The issue is the, the legal system does not allow you to do anything quickly. To take a bank through bankruptcy and reconstitute it in the U.S. without using enormous executive power, basically war powers, would require 10 to 15 years. And the, while the lawyers fought and fought and fought, so the, the fundamental problem is, is not the, the, the Federal Reserve System or the central banks, it's the legal structure, and certainly in the U.S., and I, I can't say about the U.K., that, that prevents you from doing very much about these organizations. But certainly, uh, they shouldn't be bailed out. And if they're too big to fail, I don't think splitting them into small pieces is the answer to too big to fail. because. Basically, the much of the risk they have is counterparty risk. And so the more counterparties there are, the more risk there is. But I think, uh, I think limiting the crazy incentives that people work on, which allows them to become wealthy beyond the dreams of Midas by taking hidden risks, it's an unwise way of running financial institutions. Finance, banks and insurance companies have the same problem which you can increase, you can always make current results look better by taking a hidden risk that's under the table. And people do it. And they walk home with $30 million bonuses. Well, ladies and gentlemen, you've had the trailer. Uh, the film, so to speak, is available outside. I do commend it to you. And would like us all to thank Richard very much for giving us such a stimulating evening.